This is Dr. Saba Maruf, and you are listening to Unsung Heroes, uncovering stories of inspiration and action here on Podcast Detroit. everybody and welcome back to another episode of Unsung Heroes Stories to Inspire here on Podcast Detroit. We are back with episode 31. I can't believe we're 31 episodes into this. I'm super excited um, to welcome my next guest. Um, uh, we're here in the studio with uh, our sound engineer extraordinaire, Jess. Hey, hey Jess. Hey. How are you? Good. How are y'all? Good. Um, Good. Looking forward to a nice holiday, quiet holiday season. Yeah, yeah, the quiet part, yeah. Yeah, and then, <laughs> I know. you know, Christmas Eve. <laughs> and we're missing our co-host, Calvin. He couldn't be with us today, but I'm really excited for the show today. Um, but just a quick re- recap for our new listeners and our return listeners. Um, our purpose here on Unsung Heroes is to share amazing stories and unique narratives of individuals who have been sparked by their passion to become movers, shakers, and change makers in our communities. And we truly hope that by sharing these stories of positivity, we will inspire you to live a life of purpose and action. And with that, I am super excited to introduce my next guest and my friend, Suhaila. Amen. How are you, Suhaila? I'm fabulous. How are you? I'm good. I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be (laughs) here. It's always a pleasure to be in your company and now to be a part of Unsung Heroes. Oh, thank you. Um, But just brief introduction, and it's hard to be brief with Sohela because she's done so much. Um, But she is an active leader in in the metro Detroit area. And Sohela, um, through that, faces her challenges head on, overcoming obstacles, allowing her global experiences to pave the way for advancement. She works on a number of community programs, which enable students to foster learning, social justice, and community empowerment. For over 20 years, she's volunteered with various community and national organizations, law enforcement agencies, and task force initiatives, focusing on issues concerning disenfranchisement of minority youth, substance abuse, domestic violence, and education efforts. And all of these um, really transcend geographical, cultural, religious, and educational boundaries. She works on building relationships and bridges of understanding with foreign governments, academic institutions, and grassroots communities. And she's traveled on numerous global public diplomacy missions representing the U.S. to facilitate meetings, trainings, and discuss strategies on community engagement, counterterrorism, and combating violent extremism extremism efforts and community building. Suhaila speaks nationally and internationally on the growing, on growing up Arab and Muslim American post 9-11 on community building, leadership and faith in service work and how to work collectively as a unified voice for change. Um, she and her family were actually featured on uh, TLC's All American Muslim, uh, which was a reality show in 2011 and 2012. And she is actually going to be beginning a new position in January in Beirut, Lebanon, as an international and diplomatic relations officer for the Union of Arab Banks. And she recently just graduated and um, obtained her master's in public administration from U of M Dearborn. So, oh, wow, that's a lot, Zuhaila. <laughs> <laughs> just go on and on. Amazing. I'm so excited to have you here. And yeah, I mean, you are moving like next week. So it just... I'm even more thankful that you took time out for us, um, and I'm really excited to share your voice and your story. So thank you. Thank you. 
It's it's always it, the probably the best highlight this this last uh, semester has been to finish my MPA and wow. finally graduate and be completely done with case analyses and case studies. I'm happy to not have to write anything for a little while. Wow. Well, I'm going to jump right in, actually, and ask a little bit about maybe what really sticks out, although you have such amazing, I mean, such an amazing, um, you know, background and resume, but uh, being on a reality TV show, the TLC's All-American Muslim. So tell us a little bit about that experience. So TLC had a high priority project to do on Muslims and our friend Mike Mosalam, who's from Michigan, uh, currently living in L.A., um, heard that TLC had a high priority project to do on Muslims and uh, contacted them and met with them to pitch an idea to highlight Muslims from Metro Detroit. He chose several families and pitched those families in different videos and uh, showing them some footage. They picked up on it and thought, hey, why not? You know, they had I, they had been traveling around the United States trying to meet with Muslims across the nation, interviewing families for a potential show, and they couldn't um, really find families that they felt were interesting enough to follow. They had tried actually coming into Dearborn and didn't have much luck because we're a very insular community. Mm-hmm. And um, I guess through the people they were trying to contact, they couldn't actually get an in to interview families here. So Mike ended up bringing it to them. They saw footage of all five families, found that it would be something of benefit to show people on a range of adherence to their faith. And you had in the show, you had people from one spec- one end of the spectrum to the other. You had someone very liberal to some to a family that was very conservative. And then the rest of us fell somewhere on that spectrum. And Mike, you know, came to our families, pitched the idea to us, and uh, TLC came to meet us, and uh, I believe it was Memorial Day weekend of uh, 2011. By mid-June, we had contracts, and we were filming by the end of June of 2011 for it to air at the end of that year. Um, A lot of the push was to film uh, my sister Shadia's wedding. Uh, at the time, which is why things had moved so quickly. So it highlighted the five families and their lives. Um, It really was a reality TV show. Nothing was scripted. Uh, They were following our families for about four and a half months doing filming uh, throughout the uh, throughout the day, throughout the week, um, coordinating with our schedules. And it really turned out to be a very positive experience, even though we received a lot of backlash um, from, uh, you know, people who didn't want to see Muslims in a positive lens. There were a lot of people who didn't want to accept the fact that we are an integral part of the fabric of this nation and that we contribute greatly to um, various facets like of, of professional uh, fields and whatnot. So this was an opportunity to highlight Muslims for who they are in the United States, you know, members mm-hmm. of society, um, respected professionals, individuals with different levels of uh, adherence to their faith and, um, you know, understanding of culture and how they blend that uh, East and Western culture in their lives. Wow. How, I mean, so it was a positive experience for you personally? Very positive. I enjoyed it. it you know, it's 
difficult when you're a busy person to have a camera <laughs> with you all the <laughs> time. You around. Um, like I remember even when we were working on the contracts, it was, you know, I did a lot of government work and I had to remind them, like, I can't put my phone on speaker all the time. Sometimes there are case sensitive subjects that we're talking about. Um, the fact like they followed me to uh, a state department meeting that I had and and I ha- had to put off my meeting for a month for them to get clearance to go into state department with cameras. Um, wow. You know, this is an agency where when you get to the door, they take your cell phone from you. And here I am wanting to come in with 18 people <laughs> uh, and, you know, audio visual, uh, um, you know, equipment and, and, and whatnot. And here they are, you know, standing there and they're like, well, no, we want to make this happen. We want to highlight this aspect of who you are. And it put off my meetings for about a month. And we went in, we did some filming and then had to kick them out to say, okay, now I have to have my real meeting. (laughs) 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 Because you can't be in here while we're having these conversations. And um, it, it was a, you know, it really was a great experience. It allowed people into our lives to help them understand those who had never met Muslims in the United States to understand, you know, that we're just as any other neighbor that you have. And I think it was important for TLC. um, They really did put their best foot forward and made every effort to highlight our families in the most positive aspect that they could. And uh, they really were committed to showing the reality of of Muslims in America. And I thought it was a great experience. It was a, a way for us to humanize Muslims and and during a time where we were facing a lot of um, issues with the rise of Islamophobia and the concerns that people were having in society when it came to Muslims in a post-9-11 uh, a community in a post-9-11 era, it was a chance for people to see that we were just like everyone else and not this boogeyman you know, that exists in their mind due to whatever it is that they're hearing or reading about Muslims that may be negative. So it was on for one one season? It was only one season, eight episodes. It's still on YouTube. You can find uh, the episodes on YouTube. But it was only one season. And, and really, the reality was TLC said, you know, you're just not that exciting. And, and we weren't. <laughs> we were typical. Like, kind of a compliment. <laughs> yeah, typical American families leading very boring and, you know, um, but I think it would be interesting because I remember watching it and thinking it was really cool, but also realizing how vast and diverse, um, you know, there's one term for it, Muslim Americans, but it's like how many nations do we represent? Mm-hmm. How many, but also being American, how many backgrounds, ethnic backgrounds? Like, um, and then even just even families that are interracial or interethnic and con, I mean, there's so many ways, places you could go with that. It would be actually interesting if they continued the show. But I guess, I don't know, they'd have enough, have enough people to watch because and, we are and kind of boring to some extent. The the thought was, okay, this was just an initial step. This was the first opportunity Mike chose families that he knew that would be able to deliver on allowing TLC and the media um, agency into their homes to welcome this opportunity with the hopes that in future seasons mm-hmm. they would begin to encompass more uh, that more diverse uh, image of American Muslims. 
bringing in, I mean, we're in metropolitan Detroit where you have people from every walk of life in, in our, you know, in, in Wayne County. Between Oakland, Macomb, and Wayne County, you have such a diverse group mm. of Muslims living here. So being able to incorporate African-American Muslims, South Asian Muslims, uh, converts, mm-hmm. bringing in, allowing people to understand that Muslims come from all of these different walks of life and backgrounds and that we're not just one kind. So we had faced a lot of backlash from um, the American Muslim community saying, well, you're all Lebanese, you're all from Dearborn. This isn't representative of the mm-hmm. reality of the American Muslim landscape. But the reality was that this was the first ever opportunity to highlight us in a positive capacity as a community. And Mike did what he could to, you know, within a matter of a couple of months to bring five families together who would agree to have um, cameras follow them for that long. And and really a, a huge aspect of us agreeing to this was having Mike as a part of the team. It was important for us to ensure that Mike Mosalem was being uh, properly um, you know, supported in his role in bringing these families together. And uh, knowing that Mike was a part of the production team was important for us and gave mm-hmm. us the trust that we right, needed mm-hmm. to um, really embrace the idea and welcome, you know, Shed Media and TLC into our homes. So I think it's interesting because it also sheds light on <clears throat> what it's like in Dearborn. And you grew up in Dearborn. Um, tell us a little bit about how that experience was, especially for our listeners that are not from the area. Um, and kind of how those experiences led you to this life of um, activism and service. So Dearborn is um, a small suburb of metropolitan Detroit, home to about 98,000 residents. Um, There really is no way to count the Arab American community because we are not, um, we don't have our little box on the census form. So we, you know, they'll say there's probably about 33%. We think it's a lot more, probably around 44 to 46% of the population in the city of Dearborn um, that are actually Arab American or Muslim. The community is um, mainly comprised of people from Lebanese, Iraqi, Syrian, Palestinian, Jordanian, and Yemeni backgrounds. Um, with a a sprinkle of other American Muslim communities within it. Uh, The community is, uh, has been there for generations. My mother was born and raised um, in Dearborn. My dad came to Dearborn in 1970. You have families that have been there for generations. My great-grandfather came from Lebanon to the United States in 1902 and settled in Highland Park. My great-grandmother was born in Michigan City, Indiana in the late 1800s. You, wow. have, you have families that have been in the country for years, and um, people don't tend to understand that. They, they think that this is more of a new immigrant or refugee community when, in fact, people have been coming here seeking opportunity in that American dream for many generations. And uh, Dearborn, growing up in the 80s, you know, really was a fantastic and still is a fantastic place to be. But in the 80s, we were a minority. We were a very small community um, of Arab Americans in the area, and they continued to grow. And as you saw, 
Issues across the Middle East continue to rise. So with the civil war in Lebanon, you saw an influx of Lebanese. Uh, Yemeni Americans were coming over uh, as well and settling in the area. And they were coming to Metro Detroit to work in the automotive industry where um, my father and many others in the community had worked as laborers on the assembly line. Henry Ford was hiring immigrants en masse, and mm. this was an opportunity for people to, with much easier immigration uh, policies, to bring over their families. So my dad and my grandfather came in 1970, and then they literally brought their almost their entire village over uh, through sponsorship. And um, all of them worked in the automotive industry in some capacity, and many continued on and got their education here in the area. And this was a way for the community to begin growing exponentially. And then throughout the 1990s, we saw the influx of uh, Iraqi refugees coming during the first Gulf War. And then again in the uh, 2000s, when we had Mm -hmm. gone to war in Iraq, and we saw another influx of Iraqi refugee uh, members. And uh, the community just literally grew exponentially. And growing up, I was the first girl to wear hijab, the headscarf, in elementary school in the entire district of Dearborn. That's how small it was. Whereas now it's normal to see a a young Muslim girl wearing hijab in school. Back then I was... But even One in elementary first. school, I didn't realize that you started so young, too. Yeah, I was very young when I started wearing mm-hmm. hijab. And my mom was a part of the PTA um, and uh, had spearheaded efforts to get private showers put into the bathrooms and schools. She worked with other parents in the community and other organizations to spearhead the effort to get uh, the Eid holiday um, to be not to be given off at the time because we were still a relatively small community, but so that students wouldn't be penalized for taking the day off. Mm, um, wow. That would impact our perfect attendance records, right? Because mm, that was yeah, such an important yeah. part of <laughs> We want to have that certificate yes. in fifth grade that says we had perfect attendance. <laughs> That's a good point. You're right. And um, be like a reason not to skip our holiday. I want. I need that certificate. Yeah, I need that certificate. That's another you know certificate for mom to put in my folder of accomplishments um, as a as a youth. But it was you know these were important little you know aspects of um, you know things that we had to fight for to ensure that our rights were protected as well. So my parents were activists, and uh, dad did a lot of work religiously. Mom did a lot of work within the social and educational sphere. And watching them active and working to help others is really what helped me to understand the importance of service work and why it was so important to contribute to making society a better place. And that's really what helped me to move forward in that um, and that effort to assist others in their endeavors and provide, you know, necessities to people who were under-resourced. <clears throat> wow. So, I mean, tell us a little bit about what you do. Um, I mean, some of your experiences, because I know we talked about this, but there's so much. And, I mean, you have a wealth of experience in various sectors of the community. So if you can tell us a little bit about some of those um, roles that you play, and then also about uh, some of the most of your most enriching and rewarding experiences that you've had. 
So I've worked um, in various capacities in service work and and really it's a volunteer work. So it's funny because people will ask me what nonprofit I actually work for and I had never worked for any. Um, I was never employed by any of them. Uh, it was all volunteer work and volunteer based. I was employed with Dearborn Public Schools as an educator for 13 years and then went on to work for the 19 district court in Dearborn for Judge Mark Summers for four years and then went to University of Michigan Dearborn for four years and worked with them um, uh, doing domestic and then doing international recruitment. Um, But my community service work is really at the helm of, you know, I would say what led me to be the person that I am today. And it was at the core of who I am. So when people see me, a lot of people know me for my service work and don't know me for my actual employment. Hmm. So they'll make the assumption that I actually work for one of these agencies that I do service work for. And I've worked in different capacities, civil rights. I did a lot of work in civil rights um, for many years, especially in my early 20s. Um, my late teens and into my 20s. That was something that was very important to me. Prior to 9-11 and post 9-11, a lot of the work that we did focused on uh, ensuring people people's civil liberties were protected in our community. And uh, I did a lot of service work, um, assisting under-resourced families and providing them with support, uh, encouragement, and necessities that they would need to lead fruitful and fulfilling lives. I do a lot of youth work. Um, mentoring youth is something that's very important to me. I'm currently mentoring about 15 uh, young people between um, 11th grade and into uh, their uh, undergrad. That's something that's very important to me, uh, spending time with young people and, and helping them to set their goals and, and actualize you know, the, the, the things that they're interested in and endeavoring into. And I really think it's important that when people are able to find success in their own, um, you know, various niches that you empower young people to do, to do the same. And even if it's taking, you know, half an hour, an hour out of your time, sometimes I have to meet with them in a group, Mm. um, but taking that time to listen to the things that they're struggling with to help them to understand how to navigate certain uh, roads or obstacles that they may face, especially being from culturally conservative communities, I think it's important that we empower young people and help them to understand that there's an entire world out there that they can learn from and uh that there are different avenues to take to get to that to that point. Um, unfortunately, we tend to brush aside their dreams and goals because we're so busy focusing on what is important for us. And I tend to see young people feeling marginalized. And it's you know it's always been some something that warmed my heart to see young people achieving their dreams and and accomplishing the goals that they've set for themselves. And I've always wanted to help them understand that they have the support. And though we may be busy that I'm, you know, we're only a phone call away. And um, that meant a lot to me over the years. I always wanted to ensure that young people, whether it was my own family members or 
people within the community who were children of friends of mine that they knew that they had a support system, um, especially when they were going into fields that were outside of the cultural mm-hmm. norm, mm-hmm. right? So kids going into journalism and communications, um, videography and, and screen studies, opportunities to get them engaged in, in doing exactly what you're doing, sharing the narrative, right? Changing the way people view the American Muslim community by sharing their own stories or sharing the stories of others so that we begin to tell our stories in our own voice as opposed to other people telling them for us. And that's really what helped to push me into um, focusing on on youth because I saw that everyone else was trying to tell our story for us and we were missing out on the opportunity to share our own experiences and um, get people engaged um, in a more meaningful way. So um, a, lot of, uh, a lot of those initiatives to me were really the most important in my life. If I was to say that anything was um, most rewarding, it would be in working with youth and helping them to, um, you know, see the opportunities that are available to them. Because sometimes we don't look outside the boxes that we, we've placed ourselves in or that others have placed us in. Um, and doing that work for the last almost 17 years, I had been working with the LAHC, which used to be Lebanese American Heritage Club and is now leaders advancing and helping communities. And that's an organization I take extreme pride in because I've been there as it's, you know, the organization has been around for over 30 years, but I had been there as we began to change the organization from being a social and cultural Um, club that supported very minimal amounts of activities to now having uh, sustainable and and quality programming that really impacts the lives of young people and families in our community. And uh, through the LHC, that has really been a lot lot of the work at the LHC has been my focus for the last decade. And um, you know, I've always been doing other little things like a lot of humanitarian work, um, social services involved in, you know, helping to understand the substance abuse um, issues that we face in our community. And a lot of that stemmed from my time working at the court mm. and seeing the realities mm. of what our community was suffering with as, you know, as the community in Dearborn collectively. And it broke my heart to see kids coming in on drugs Um or um, dealing with issues of promiscuity at, you know, and you're talking in middle school and early high school years. And I wanted to be able to discuss these issues and address them with clergy, with other community leaders, to the point that I would even welcome um, local media and tell them, you need to come into the courtroom and see the things that we're dealing with because we need to start having conversations about these issues. Wow, so important. And those issues are still so prevalent and dealing with them, continue continue to deal with them. Um, We were talking about before we went on air, actually, um, Jessica was asking about our experiences at the airport. And I was like, I love DTW. I feel like there's, I mean, then that's true. I always have a really good experience flying um, in and out of uh, DTW. And I didn't realize that a lot of that is because of the efforts that you and the group that you've been working with have also, um, you know, have dedicated your time to. Can you tell us a little bit about that? 
So a lot of the work that I've done over the last 15 years has been working with various federal departments and agencies to build relationships between government and community. Um, We started immediately after 9-11, which then became an initiative a couple years later called Bridges, which was building respect in diverse groups to enhance sensitivity. And it was a it was at the insistence of community leadership, not the government, that we begin having a dialogue and begin to understand what the needs of these government agencies were when they were trying to um, gather information. Like initially it had to do with the FBI sweeps that were being done immediately post 9-11 to check on people's immigration status or visa status. <clears throat> This way, that sounds um, familiar, right? Local <laughs> organizations, <laughs> exactly. Local organizations then began to reach out to federal agencies. Um, at the time, Homeland Security wasn't officially established, and you know, say, what can we do to provide you with the assistance you need to conduct your investigations while we protect the rights of of these residents in in uh, in our community. So um, providing residents with the assistance that they needed while allowing the government to do their job. Uh, We address a lot of issues at Bridges. Not necessarily are any of these issues ever even, you know, um, what's the right word? Like we don't always find answers, nor do we always um, have success in changing policies or regulations because this is done on a federal level and we're meeting on a, you know, state level. But the fact that we're able to get people to the table and have a conversation, conversations have been heated over the years. There, you know, it's an opportunity for us to engage in dialogue, whether we, you know, unfortunately, whether, you know, we are able to get, um, an answer to some of our questions is is always up in the air at times. But the fact that these directors, and, and these are directors, the directors of these agencies in the state of Michigan are the ones who come to these meetings. So we're not getting just a representative or, or mm-hmm. another officer within that agency. This is the directors of these agencies coming together with leadership from the Arab and Chaldean American community to have these conversations. So we talk about deportation. We talk about the terror watch list, the no-fly list, um, issues at the border, um, what we can do as a community to uh, rally efforts around these issues and you know what these agencies can do to better understand the needs of the communities that they're serving so that we can – have more productive dialogue and success in in dealing with these you know wide range of issues that we face. Um, though we don't always get our answers, the fact that you're able to go through customs in metropolitan Detroit and not face issues that you may face in other nations really is a testament to the um, to that 15 years of dialogue that's been taking place between agencies. I really, uh, and I fly internationally all the time, never fly, I don't like to fly anywhere except into Detroit. Um, A lot of that has to do with the fact that if I'm bringing things home from overseas, I don't have to go through an hour-long explanation as to why I have these different nuts (laughs) in in my bag or why I'm bringing home kishik, which is a dried yogurt, um, or mluchia, which is uh, Jews mallow in English. Um, 
which is a leafy green, right? <laughs> and when it's dried, it, it literally looks like marijuana. So having to train... Because um, they already know. They've been through the training, yeah, so they're familiar with it. They've been through the trainings. They're familiar with it. It's being done in other um, cities as well where there are large populations that come with people who bring these, these things back home uh, to the United States with them. Uh, when they're visiting other, you know, other countries, and uh, it really has been important because this this has allowed for us. So, if you're at the um, you're at the Ambassador Bridge and you get pulled over and there's an there's an issue, we have the ability to instead of going through a wide range of you know uh, protocol that could take days to get answers to, I can pick up the phone and call the port authority director or or the assistant director and, and try to get answers for issues that we're dealing with, you know, with uh, members from our community who are facing um, some type of concern at, you know, at these uh, port authorities. So it's important that we have this open dialogue. Um, and, you know, we can continue to work. Sometimes it's, you know, hitting our head up against a brick wall. You know, we've been having a conversation on the no-fly list for for years, and we've yet to get answers. Um, but the fact that they're actually willing to listen is helpful, and really these state directors can only do so much. It's, it's a matter of getting it to the national level. Given the concerns that we continue to face now with the rise of tensions and this new Muslim travel ban, we continue to have conversations. And when you saw um, when the travel ban came into play, initially in, back in January, you saw tensions rise across airports across the country. Here in Detroit, we didn't face as many issues because Customs and Borders was willing to work with our community and with our leadership. And they, uh, in turn, when we held our protest at uh, DTW, Department of Homeland Security and the airport authority worked hand in hand with the community leadership to coordinate efforts for our protest to ensure mm -hmm. that we were able to share our voice and have our say without um, facing the issues that we were seeing across the country where in other cities, other metropolitan areas, there were they were staging sit-ins. Um, it was a battle with mm -hmm. their agencies because they don't have these relationships, whereas here we had DHS and, and um, you know, from TSA, uh, Wayne County, uh, the Airport Authority, Customs and Border, all working hand-in-hand -hand with us to make sure that constituents had their opportunity to protest the ban and stay safe as well. Well, so some are, what are some of the pressures, um, you know, I mean, it's not all rainbows and butterflies, I'm sure, <laughs> doing all this amazing work. <laughs> what are some of the pressures you encounter living this life of service and being involved in so many important, crucial aspects of uh, bridge building and community involvement and leadership? You know, it's funny we do so much with every good intention to ensure there's a benefit to the community. And I'm not, when I say community, I'm talking collectively as a community, as Americans, as here in metropolitan Detroit. And a lot of the work I've done has been across communities with hand in hand with the Latino, African-American, uh, white, you know, Caucasian. 
Arab American, South Asian, we do a lot of work collectively to ensure that our voices are being heard as Americans and that we're protecting our civil liberties and our rights, um, which is so necessary in a day and age where you continue to see your rights being infringed upon in different capacities, whether it be your access to the Internet or your access to, you know, getting back into into the United States after after international travel. Um it you know really the response varies right so i i'll get people from my from the arab or muslim american community who don't understand why i work with federal agencies and they'll ask me are you a spy <laughs> With the CIA, I'm like, no. Wait, if, who asks this? People, people in the, the community com- yeah, are like, oh, that. you work with the CIA. <laughs> I'm like, no. I If I'm on TV talking about <laughs> you know, the importance of getting involved, I really believe that if we want to begin to change the way people perceive us, that we need to work within these agencies so that if you are working with um, – the FBI or the CIA or Department of State or Homeland Security or, you know, Department of Justice, that people within these agencies know that they have Muslims working within their departments that they can go to and seek advice from as opposed to always, Mm -hmm. you know, Googling how to, you know, address certain matters and, and never getting the proper information. If I have a Muslim colleague, I can go to that Muslim colleague and say, do you feel that this rhetoric may be offensive? Do you think that this may not be appropriate? Or do you you know, feel that these opportunities may be more detrimental than beneficial to communities of color? So I think it's important that we are a part of the uh, these federal agencies that are mandating or even a part of the political system uh, so that those who are mandating policies that are going to impact communities, that that we have a better understanding of these policies, of how to impact the, uh, impact the communities that are um, – that these policies are touching and how we need to begin having a conversation on how to rectify situations, address them, provide necessary training to educate others. So I'll get people randomly who'll say, oh, you must be a spy um, (laughs) because I'll do work with government agencies, which is very public. I, I don't shy away from talking about the work that I do. Um, because I feel that it's a benefit to my community. When I can get a phone call from heads of agencies and organizations on a national and federal level um, to question policies or get our perspective or get some insight and understanding from the needs that our community has, um, I think we've made a, a, a lot of headway in that in that um, capacity. Um, I'll get people on a community level because – for years, I was so integrally involved in so many different organizations. I think like at one point in my mid to late 20s, I sat on like 13 different boards and committees. And I was literally like a professional volunteer, professional mm-hmm. event hopper. Mm-hmm. And I was always, I mean, I was everywhere. And I would get people who would tell me, don't you want to get married? When are you, you know, I'm 38 and single, which is like being 85 and Arab years with a third <laughs> eye. You know, they're like, what's wrong with you? I'm like, I'm, I'm fine. You know, I, nothing's wrong with me. And they're like, well, don't you want to get married? You know, you're always helping others. Or I get the old aunties and uncles who look at me and they're like, well, it's okay that you're not married yet because you do good work. So I kind of get a free pass. <laughs> 
<laughs> and I get a free, a free pass. It's like, okay, you're okay because you're helping us. <laughs> but, you know, it, it can be frustrating. And, you know, even like in saying that, so in being single at my age, I think it's important that especially within communities, ethnic communities who have very strong ties to their culture and like traditions, that women understand that it's okay to follow your goal, uh, follow your dreams, accomplish your goals, set lo- you know lofty goals for yourself. Mm. I was lucky that I had parents that um, truly supported everything that I wanted to do. So shout out to Lila and Mahsin, Amen, <laughs> because they really were amazing and instrumental in my ability to understand the world and and the differences that allowed us to be more globally aware. Um, we had a very diverse group of friends growing up. My parents always pushed us to understand other faiths and other communities, and that allowed me to open my mind and understand the communities that lived around me. And then as I began to travel, understand the other communities across the nation and across the, the global landscape as well. And, um, you know, it's hard. It's not easy um, to be in the position that I am and work in an arena uh, within the service industry that really was only men who were my father's age. For many, many years, I was the, one of three women sitting at the leadership table. And I was always the youngest for a long time, whereas now we have a new generation of youth mm-hmm. who are you know, taking the lead and we've passed, you know, many of us have passed on the torch and we got to get the others to pass on the torch too. (laughs) But, you know, we have this extraordinary group of young leaders coming up, Um, young men and women who are truly interested in changing the way we view issues in society from mental health and uh, substance abuse to domestic violence and uh, religious um, studies. These are young people who want to make change happen, and they are going to be those difference makers that begin to change the way people look at our community and look at issues that we're dealing with as Americans in today's society. And, uh, you know, I always... I struggled for a long time. I would have men tell me, you're very intimidating. Um, you know, you know too many people. <laughs> I like It is. It's hard. I mean, we've all gone mm-hmm. out together. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it is hard for me to walk into a place within the metro Detroit area, especially within the Arab or Chaldean American community, and not know somebody. Um, uh, but it's something that I enjoy and I love because when people come up to you and they're telling you, you know, great work, you've done extraordinary things for our community, it really helps to reinforce that love that you have for helping others because often the work that people do goes unnoticed and those who are truly doing it with every good intention aren't looking for awards or accolades. But it is nice when you're walking, you know, into a local bakery and uh, you know, someone that is, you know, your grandparents' age comes up to you and says, you help us to hold our head high. You know, mm. they say in Arabic, like, wow. and it's such a beautiful um, feeling to know that these are people who are watching the things that you do and and just want to give you that pat on the back or tell you, you know, we hope, you know, we, we pray that God gives you strength to continue doing what you're doing, which totally makes me forget being single mm-hmm. <laughs> sometimes. 
until the next person brings it up at a wedding. (laughs) (laughs) Then we have to have the conversation all over again. (laughs) Oh, wow. So, so Hila, tell us what's next, um, what's in store for you and a little bit about your next adventure that you're about to embark on. So I'll be leaving on Wednesday. (laughs) I'm so sad. I feel like I just got to know you and you're leaving. I know. We were just (laughs) talking about that. It does make me sad. And, you know, I, for, for many years, I mean, I'll be honest in saying I was afraid to leave because all of these extraordinary programs that we had worked on and developed over the years, I was so scared to leave without knowing that they would be mm-hmm. continued or sustained. And I was always afraid to leave young people in our community because I didn't know if they would have the support system that they needed or that I had really tried with a group of friends to focus on. And um, now that these you know, young people are, are growing up and they're, you know, coming into their 20s and, you know, mid and late 20s and they're super active, I can sit back and like breathe and feel like, okay, you know, now, now I can continue to focus on my career as opposed to my career in service work, mm-hmm. right? So um, I'll <clears throat> be moving to Beirut, Lebanon, um, which I absolutely love. I try to go as often as I can. Sometimes I'll go twice a year, but at least once a year over the last decade I've gone. And I love, you know, being there. It's my ancestral homeland. I was born and raised here. And it's funny because people look at me like everyone's trying to come here and you're going there. Um, But I feel like this is the next best step um, for me and for my uh, career. I'll be doing international and diplomatic relations work and um, in the financial uh, sector, in the banking sector. So I'll be working for an agency that oversees uh, public relations, professional development, and uh, diplomatic relations for the central banking system, as well as other financial and banking agencies um, based out of the Middle East and North Africa. Um, but the headquarters is based in Beirut. So I'll be traveling uh, overseas and I'll be back every three to four months to visit. Um, but I'll be moving overseas to begin this next adventure. And I'll be working to help build their relationships with foreign agencies like World Bank, the United Nations, International wow. Monetary Fund. So I'm not going to work in uh, so much in the Arab world, but help to... Uh, help them to build relationships with foreign agencies. Wow, that's amazing. I love how that just is a kind of a natural step for you too, given your work in kind of liaison and bridge building and community building and And relationships. I think it's important that people understand you never know how you're going to be seen by others. So I always tell people, you know, you really need to always, that first impression really matters and you always need to put your you know, best foot forward. I met, I met the secretary general of this agency um, years ago, got to know him better over the years, had been you know, working with his daughter in different um, aspects while she was studying here in the United States and just got closer to him uh, over the last few years. And 
um, you know, he would say, like, I always used to watch you network and you have this keen ability from the man who opens the door for you at a restaurant to the person who puts the coals on your hookah to the guy who's, <laughs> you know, picking up the dishes off the mm-hmm. table to the owner of the establishment. You treat people with kindness and compassion, and it's evident in the way that you communicate with them that you actually care. And a lot of people don't do that. They don't have that ability to connect with people on a, on a very deep human level. And he's like, it really like left me shocked as to how easy, easily you communicate with others. And I laughed and I was like, well, I like to talk. (laughs) (laughs) I don't have a problem talking. If anybody knows me, they know that. Um, Well, that's interesting because I think also, and correct me if I'm wrong, but in the Middle East and I mean, I know in other countries, sometimes there's a lot of, there is kind of a sense of classism and like my husband's like that too. He'll go out of his way to help the janitor like say hi to the I mean I still remember that from when we first got married and it's always stuck with me as well and I wonder if that's kind of um, maybe kind of an American thing too and so that's something that you're taking from your upbringing even and, back and, to a place that is a little bit more class conscious and they are very class conscious right so a lot of people I will, I'll be out with friends um, who who were born and raised in the Middle East and they don't treat everyone with compassion, at least, you know, I, and I've watched and it kind of saddened me and people would actually ask me like, why are you talking to him or why are you giving mm-hmm. her that much attention? And it's just, um, it's just the way we do things. And, and it truly is an American thing because I just got back from Berlin last week and I would, and I had posted on Facebook, like people are just not nice. Um, in, in Berlin, like I, you know, here in America, and it's so funny because sometimes we tend to think we're rude as Americans. Um, but when I travel internationally, I don't get the warm welcome that I get mm-hmm. here in America. And though we fa- we have our issues and, you know, there always is discrimination and, you know, racism, whether structural or institutionalized or just plain idiocy, <laughs> I think it's, you know, important that we... You know, we do take for granted certain things. Like I can walk down the street, see Jess, look her in the eye and say good morning, you know, and she'll respond. Whereas, you know, you can walk into somebody in a foreign country and they just look at you and keep going. There is no pardon me, excuse me, um, I'm sorry. And uh, I found it to be interesting. And, and, you know, the secretary general of UAB was telling me, it's like, that's, that's a gift that you have mm-hmm. that I don't see often. And, you know, sometimes staff in, you know, like in these different global communities aren't able to connect with U.S.-based agencies because those cultural nuances aren't understood, the culture is not known, and they, they don't have that... Um, uh, communication etiquette that's needed to establish these relationships. And I guess because I've worked with a lot of these agencies, um, I, I have an understanding of what they're looking for. And sometimes it's just a matter of having a quality conversation. Um, and that's a lot of how I built my network over the years. People have always, you know, and I'm grateful for this. And I, and I attribute a lot of it to my parents and to mentors that I've had in my life who taught me how to be a relationship builder But um, being able to connect with people and stay connected, like 
following up with emails, Mm -hmm. sending personal messages. Like just on the way here, I called the head of a federal agency in the state of Michigan just to say Merry Christmas. Um, there are several police officers in Dearborn that I'm really close to, and I, w- I called them yesterday. Just I just want to tell you guys Merry Christmas. I hope you have time to spend with your families. I don't want anything. I don't need anything. There's not an issue I want to raise. I just want to tell you Happy Holidays. And I, and, and I think we've forgotten at times how to just connect with people without needing something mm-hmm. from them. And, um, you know, he was saying just that he's like, I just want you to continue building the, the relationships with the contacts that I make. So that's really what I'm going to do is to be a relationship builder and to, you know, help him uh, create the relations that he needs in order to um, hopefully the end goal is to open up a, a, um, an office in the United States hmm. for this agency. Wow, that sounds amazing. I'm so excited for you and proud of you because I know that that was not easy to make that decision. As you mentioned, kind of, you know, be I know you're really close to your family and then not being married, that kind of has another, like you have um, obli- not just obligations, but you're even closer to your nuclear family and to take that leap and step is really huge. But I think that it's going to be an awesome opportunity for you to grow. And, um, and I'm, I mean, you do have such a, warm vivacious personality but um like you're hilarious and funny but you're also so caring and genuine and i I agree with um that person that saw those qualities in you that that's like very unique and i'm um and i'm sure much needed in that sector so i'm really excited for you thank you thank you i paid her to say that (laughs) Um, that's why we're friends yeah Oh, but like I said, I am because we just got to know each other like the last several few months. And um, so I'm kind of sad, but I'm glad you're going to be back, you know, every few months. And and that's the power of social media, too. I know. Right. I know. Thank God for social media and, and, you know, the different ways that you can communicate via Wi-Fi. I'm sure we'll hear about your adventures, too. You're really articulate. And um, I love reading about your experiences. So thank you. Thank you. But, you know, I What's important is that we continue to, you know, focus on, I know even though I'll be abroad that I'll still be, you know, addressing issues that are going on in the community because it's something that's close to my heart and, you know, probably find some causes to get involved with uh, while I'm there as well. But, you know, our community is lucky to have extraordinary role models um, to look mm-hmm. up to like yourself. I mean, oh, really, so like, that's why though. we were, you know, we were chatting and uh, when we were chatting and talking about it, I'm like, it is, it, it does make me sad because I feel like I've finally found a group of women who um, I was always searching for in my friendships that uplift and inspire and encourage and support. And now I'm having to leave them. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is, you know, it is an opportunity to grow and hopefully to be able to bring, uh, you know, if if God's will brings me back here to metropolitan Detroit, that I can bring these, you know, global experiences back with me. And, uh, you know, I just hope that, you know, as I leave, I really hope that young people in our community look at the opportunities that are available to them because times are so different now. Mm-hmm. When I was growing up, kids didn't go away to school. And um, the community was extremely insular. 
whereas now we see kids who are going away to school, they're traveling abroad, uh, doing, you know, study abroad programs. These are opportunities for them to build their um, global awareness. And and I, I truly hope that if there are any young people listening or any parents listening, give your child every opportunity to see the world and to understand the different communities that make up our global society, because it, it really is going to help catapult them into a different realm of professionalism once they get into their career. And I think had I not had parents that supported my traveling during my political uh, work and political involvement that I wouldn't have had the experiences that I've had and been able to travel around the world the way that I did, um, creating these relationships that look is helping me to get a, a job now, um, you know, abroad. So these are you know chances for us mm-hmm. to broaden our horizons and embrace this extraordinary world that we live in. Wow. Well, very inspiring words and so fitting um, for this show. Um, Thank you, Sohela, for being our unsung hero. I really, um, really enjoyed sharing your voice and your story. And I really hope that everybody tunes in um, and is inspired by the work that you do and just the person that you are. So thank you. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in for another episode. Please, please follow us on Facebook, um, like our page, follow, uh, subscribe on iTunes. You can listen to us on, um, the pod- on www.podcastdetroit.com. Um, and send us a message on Facebook. You know, we were working on a website, but that's kind of been delayed. So primarily we communicate through Facebook. Please send us a message, especially if you want to nominate an unsung hero or a cause um, we would love to um, hear from you and talk about it and please leave us a review on iTunes as well it really keeps us going so thank you everybody have a wonderful holiday and happy new year and we'll see you back in 2018 thanks bye